Hey everybody, welcome to Hit Rewind. This episode's going to be a little bit different. Uh, instead of mini-sodes, we're going to be doing different segments. Uh, so I am with John. We're going to be doing the first two segments. Say hello, John. Hello, John. That's perfect. <laughs> um, but what we're going to do is go through our... He chose 10 significant grunge albums. Sort of. You gave me an option of one or two from a specific artist. Uh, where they're primarily known for the grunge era, and then basically a top ten. How would they, you know, from uh, favorite to least favorite? And uh, right, did I get that right, or did I screw that all up? Well, that's about exactly what I was looking at. So I was kind of figuring that we're going to uh, look at these as. Oh, I've got a little bit of. Uh, I, I can hear myself. Oh, I get <laughs> the phone away from you. There we go. Yeah, I'll get a little Okay, is that better? Okay. Either significant, uh, same as in the grunge uh, genre, or or at least classified it on Wikipedia uh -huh. for a bit, and then I kind of pared it down to ten. And it, it's like, because you would ask me about Smashing Pumpkins, right? We could have thrown off by. <laughs> yeah, which I, I just kind of thought of them as really you associate them more with alternative in the '90s, more so than grunge, and like. I had Bush on there. I had Hole. Uh, you know, it's like uh, I also kind of wanted to, for the most part, limit it to a certain couple of years. Yeah, like the beginnings of the grind breakout, basically. Yeah. 92, and 93. Granted, yeah, great. And there's some, I like, uh, what, uh, Stone Tall Pilots is purple. is like 94, I think, something like that. But, you know, I, I still try to keep it right, right. in that very early 90s. Um, and then our second segment will be uh, comic book events of 1990, and then uh, um, my friend Curzy will be stepping in, and we're we'll discussing. Uh, it's a little late for Halloween, but whatever. Return or uh, yeah, Return of the Living Dead and Day of the Dead. Um, so let's start off with our top ten in order of least favorite to most favorite. Um, is that how you want to do it? Like work your way yeah. up to your favorite? Okay, so you go first. Okay, so I. Uh... In, in this list, I ended up uh, getting down to a couple bands I hadn't really listened to that much, and but Candlebox was one that I really I know the hits, the the, the two big songs from them, and it's a it's a good album, and I kind of feel a little like I don't feel bad that it's, that's on the bottom of my list, but. I remember reading some of the excerpts from the Village Voice review, uh, which, for those who don't know, Village Voice was this alt news magazine uh, back in the day, and it had some really pretentious-ass people doing reviews for them. You know, kind of like Pitchfork. <laughs> yeah, I thought Village Voice was still around, honestly. Uh, actually, it, they, it was. Well, I should say, it was around for a while, then it went away. It is back now. Okay. But reading reading the uh, review, I just started making a jerk off motion about it because 
because they're basically just going, oh, these guys are scene suckers, you know, it, you know, they're not real or some or some bullshit like that. And well, considering that they're a Seattle band, they were formed a year before the biggest names in this genre released the biggest albums. It's a little unfair to kind of shit on them for effectively sounding like a grunge album. Well, I think why people are mad is because they were pretty boys. They loved it. I remember this in high school. Uh, you know, they don't just you come across it. They came where we But they're like, oh, they, they were so wonderful. And they got, they're so personal. They're so much better than the other grunge bands. And I, I honestly didn't consider Candlebox grunge until you said it. I was just like, oh, they're just kind of like, I fit them in more like with Collective Soul and Live and stuff like that. Goo okay. Dolls. Or rock, maybe. I don't know what you call that. But, well, but that's what, is, what I think is the problem, if you want to say that about this, is, yeah, it basically just sounds like a grunge album. Like, if you were to distill the sound of this type of music into what you think a grunge album sounds like, Candlebox basically kind of sounds like that. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, see it, calling them scene suckers is bullshit, but mm, let's, let's be honest, it is kind of generic in, in its sound. It's not a bad album. It's pretty, it's pretty damn good, but it's also just kind of generic. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, do you want me to do my full list? Or do you, uh, you know what? One? You say it. We'll discuss it, and I'll tell you which one. The Candlebox was my number six. Okay. Okay. Uh, my number nine was L7's Bricks Are Heavy. And it's a band where, I swear, I always trick myself into thinking I like L7 more than I actually do. And then I kind of remember when I listened to them that I really only like the two uh, two of the big songs that are off this album, Shit List and Pretend We're Dead. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like it's a it's a pretty heavy album. Like where grunge meets other things, L7 kind of like well, Hole really was like in kept more like a punk rock band at the time. Right, right. And L7 is is grunge, but it also kind of has this metal leaning to it. I, I This is my number four. I have never heard this album before. I've only heard that one hit song, and I was blown away. I love this. This might move up my list as the years go on. I, I loved it. Honestly, this album, they do not fuck around. Like I said, when we talk about like a metal leaning to this – it is heavy. It's got intensity. There's a lot of stuff going on here, but at the same time, I also kind of found it boring, which is weird because as I'm just you know kind of up upselling it with metal and intensity and all this stuff, it also just kind of it, it meanders a bit. But why it's not at like the very bottom of my list is it's doing something. You know, it there is definitely sound and intent, and whether or not it, uh, I feel it succeeds. And I think it might actually be the Butch Vig production. Yeah, because I, I felt that when I was thinking of this, I was also thinking of Sonic Youth. Yeah, it's like, and I, I was trying to struggle with who could do this album. I think better justice, and the only name came up with Rick Rubin. But it's like, yeah, I think if there was a different producer on the album, I think 
it probably would have landed more for me. I was all in on it. So, <laughs> so that changes things. The dynamics on this are going to be weird. There's going to be one. There's going to be one outlier that you're going to fucking be so angry about. I'm just warning you now. Well, I'm, I'm genuinely su- kind of surprised at where some of these things did land on my list. Uh, my next one would be Mud Honey. Uh, Every good boy deserves fudge. Um, that is my dead last. That is your dead last? Okay, so fair boring. enough. Well, it's like, uh, it's the lo-fi production that does kind of set this down for me. You know, it's like, if this was cleaner, if they're, like, I I like the album, but I think the fact that this was the album that kind of kept Sub Pop afloat for a while is pretty fucking sad. Yeah. (laughs) Like, but, but this is also, like, you hear this album, and you hear... Every other uh, every other grunge act in this album. Yeah, yeah. Not, not in the I think that's what it is. Like, it felt like a generic catch-all. Hey, hey, we're the grungies. <laughs> if you remember well, Ben Stiller. Well, it's, that, it's that everybody stole from this album, it feels like. Oh, okay. Because this, uh, this is the oldest one. I think, what, this was 89, I think? 89 or 90. So it's like, you know, and Bud Huddy had been around for a while at that point. So it's, you know, yeah, it feels like this was where everybody else decided, oh, hey, I like that idea. Oh, hey, this is really good. I'm going to take this little bit and this little bit and Frankenstein it into something a little better. <laughs> but yeah, it, this is a really good, this is a good album. And uh, Broken Hands in particular is the song that I think has the DNA of every grunge band that that followed. All right, what I my next one was Pearl Jam's Ten. That is my number five. Yeah, it's a band. Like I said, it's another band that I'd never gotten into. Okay, see, this was this was one of my all time greats. At the, you know during that period of high school where I listened to it constantly. You know, and I moved on. I, I listened to like the next three or four, and then I kind of, I think after Yield, I got kind of bored. Um, and I thought I wasn't going to be able to listen to this because I was so sick of it at the time. And uh, I was like, oh, it brought me to nostalgic feels, but there's still some really good ones in there that aren't the hit singles. That's basically it. I pretty much only really like the singles. Although, I will say this, Garden off this album is just, you know, fantastic. But I listened to this after uh, I listened to like the uh, Mother Love Bone and some of this other stuff. And, you know, reading about this, basically Pearl Jam is uh, what happened when uh, Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament uh, ended up, well, leaving, I guess is the kindest way to say it after Mother Love Bone ended. uh, What they did with Eddie Vedder. And I kind of, after listening to Mother Love Bone, it feels like Eddie Vedder kind of held everybody back because, you know, some of these songs were, you know, originally for Brother Love Boned and then got repurposed. And, you know, it's like you hear this and then you listen to also like Temple of the Dog. And you go like, why does this album, aside from like the hits, really, why does this album not feel as good as these other, you know, these other projects that the same people are in? Either A, they used A material for those two projects, and then, again, this is all B-side, D-side stuff. 
or I don't know. As I said, it just it it just yeah. And I for some reason I really wish that I was expecting this to be higher on my list, honestly. Wow. Yeah, I I, I was not sure, but you know, middle of the road, right in the middle, seems fine to me. Yeah. And then uh, my five is Temple of the Dog. That is my number eight. Oh my god, did you fall? <laughs> Are you okay? Uh, I have the cat decided to grab my <laughs> phone cord, and now I am tied up. I apologize, everybody. This is uh, uh, <laughs> uh, if you want to pause, okay. sure. Okay. All right, everybody. Hit rewind bloopers and practical jokes. <laughs> uh, oh. Temple of the Dog is my number eight. Uh, I thought it was fine. I just, I, I didn't hate any of these albums except I thought Mud Honey was really boring. That was it. Well, that's the thing. Well, the thing is, like, I like the story behind the Temple of the Dog album. It's, you know, again, uh, we bring up Mother Love Bone. Effectively, uh, Andrew Wood of Mother Love Bone ended up uh, dying of a heroin overdose. We're like right before his their only album dropped and they you know it's like the seattle scene was very in uh was basically a lot of other people hung out together were good friends and temple of the dog was chris cornell uh his tribute to his friend fucking again, insane. if you think about it all of these people are dead except for you know all the lead singers are dead i think except for um eddie vetter yeah better still around this is fucked <laughs> But uh, it's, you know, it, basically a lot of this is, uh, you know, lyrics and some of the music is uh, Chris Cornell, but then Stone Gossard also did uh, did some of the music and stuff. And it's it's a pretty damn good album, but it's also, basically it's a lot of ballads. Yeah, that's why I, I guess I could get into it. It was, it was too, it was too slow. I'm a, I'm a rocker man. I'm a rocker. I need it. I need speed. Yeah, what well, it's kind of funny is basically it it feels like it's the because all these songs like again all the talent in is in this album you know, that you have but it's it feels like it's a bunch of like the lesser songs off an album that's a masterpiece yeah and that's good but also yeah kind of you know it's like where are the you know I don't want to say where are the hits but yeah it's like where are the hits. <laughs> sort of thing all right next okay my next one and this kind of hurt stone temple pilots purple <sighs> i quit no <laughs> low lower on my list that i really really thought yeah. was so we had we both had a choice between core or purple uh, we both chose purple apparently uh purple is my favorite album of all time so you know where that is Oh, okay. Yeah, that, well, that's the thing. It's like, this is a really good album, but it's weird is I just, I just kind of found it a little meandering. Like, there's a lot of different good, you know, the songs are good. It's stylistically different quite a bit. Uh, I had, for, for some reason, I had forgotten how amazing Loungefly is. So uh, you saw earlier today we posted memories of 1994 and summer of 94. Um, I got my license. I went to action movies all summer long. 
I got a PC and played Doom while listening to this album and Paul's Boutique while getting my first job at McDonald's. All this stuff at once is so just... I have such strong, strong memories. And I thought I had moved on from this album. <laughs> like an old girlfriend, it came back into my life. Um, no, I, I balance between the two favorite albums, Paul's Boutique or this. But a lot of it's emotional based. But I really, really love this one. And uh, it's weird that it sold half of what Core did. And I don't think Core is that strong. It has three like really great songs. But I love this one. And this is the first time I ever noticed on an album that they had a bonus track at the end, which is the Lounge Singer song. Yeah, it's like, it's like, how would, like, five minutes, five minutes into that, because uh, what, the end song is only, like, just, like, two minutes, and then you have, like, a three-minute break, and then five, like, after five minutes, you got that little bonusy thing. Yeah. But, yeah, it's like, this song, I think, is kind of like with Core, the hits are the best songs. You know, you got international love, uh, love song. Yeah, well, that's what everybody knows because of the crow, I think. Yeah, uh, well, big empty from the crow. Sorry, oh my god, I just embarrassed myself so yeah. fucking bad. Yeah. Vaseline. I mean, listen, the hits on this are phenomenal. I think it, the the Leo brothers are severely underrated when it comes to talking about the great guitarists. I, I cannot believe their work is so good and no one ever says a fucking thing. But, that, but the problem is I think it's like side A of this album is really good. And then with the exception of like, like I said, uh, Big Empty on side B, the, the side B stuff isn't as strong. Because that's like what Army Ants and uh, Silver, was it Silver Gun Superman yeah. or something like that. It kind of like suffering go like, you know, skip, skip. It's funny as I didn't look, I didn't notice this until right now. Stone Tell Pilots is led by uh, Scott Weiland, but he mm -hmm. only wrote two songs on this. This is the DeLeo brothers running the entire show. And so when you see, Oh, wait, hold on a second. I'm, I'm just reading this. Okay, it says lyrics by Scott Wieland and the music written by the Delio Brothers. Never mind, forget what I just said. That's an embarrassment. I was so thrown off when I read that. <laughs> um, Where were we? <laughs> okay, well, if you want to keep going purple, otherwise I got my number four. Go ahead. Um, which is Mother Love Bones Apple. And it's, you know, it's like, I would 100% trade Pearl Jam's entire career for just one more Mother Love Bone wow, record. Wow, really? I'm a huge fan of Itology, so that's hard for me to give up. Uh, Mother Love Bone is my number nine. I'm sorry. Oh. I just didn't get into it. But it's like, there's definitely, like, this was a little bit of a toss-up uh, for my for my number uh, three spot. But uh, uh, we'll get to that one in just a moment. But, uh, like, these songs on here are really tight. It's a very thing. But the opener, this is Shangri-La, 100% is, like, it, it's musical nirvana. It's just, <laughs> it's wonderful. And it's, what's funny, it, like, there's also Holy Roller on there, which is 
the most 80s song yeah, of I really that, enjoyed that one <laughs> which is yeah it, it okay am i crazy or does it feel like it's a mashup of def leppard and dave era van halen oh yeah i just i was thrown off when that played i was like is this is this what supposed this is what they sound like and i was like what it definitely if you've never heard this album i i out of everything on this album even my number one i would go and say listen to this album even though it's like like number four (laughs) (laughs) uh now all right for my number three this hurt me this hurt me a lot because i was going into this thing basically kind of joking why is alice in chains dirt number one album of all time in grunge you know why were we doing this list? Because it's got to be dirt. Well, <laughs> it's actually my number three. It's my number two. Yeah, it's like, I love this album, but I kind of should say I love the hits off this album. And those songs make me forget that things like Untitled and Sick Man kind of suck. <laughs> Sick Man. I listened to that and I was like, is this just filling out? Here's the one thing, and yes, he was struggling with drug addiction, but there's a lot of songs in here about drug addiction. It's, it's they felt like they should have trimmed it a little bit because thematically, it gets a little repetitive. Yeah, although let, let's be honest, there's uh, four songs on this album that I'm certain like 90 percent of all bands wish they could have written. Mm-hmm. You know, Brewster, Wood, Them Bones, and Down in a Hole. There's so many people I know wish they wish they wrote yeah. something those that good i love wood it was so good yeah oh man it's like in these songs they, they kind of they do a good job of clouding the flaws on this album uh-huh. but you know, i'm listening to us in an objective uh thing objective manner and it's just like wow this song isn't good <laughs> really really hurts me to say that i love that one too yeah i just remember this is one of those at that time i grabbed a lot of these albums i didn't listen to at the time so they have a different effect for me yeah that's, that's the other thing is uh, i listened to dirt quite a bit you know like a couple yeah. of years ago but it's, it's one of those things where sitting down and actually listening to some of these albums i'm not as familiar with and then, you know, putting ones that I'm more familiar with at the end, so I'm not kind of clouding my judgment in some cases. Because uh-huh. here's one, my number two. I've I not listened to a lot of Soundgarden. Like, I had, I've heard, I did hear Super Unknown, and I, uh, stuff from Down on the Upside, I'd heard that stuff. I had a copy of their hits album, Telephantasm, and I got it with one of the Guitar Hero games. But I, it was never a band that hooked my attention. And I think it's because Spoonman, I hate that song. You do? I love that and song. I want to stab myself in the ears anytime I hear it. <laughs> so but, is it your Under the Bridge where I, I cannot fucking stand Under the Bridge? I'm so annoyed by it. Yeah, it just, it's one of the things where it, it kind of limited what I would actually go and listen to when it came to Soundgarden. So it's like I had never actually heard Bad Motorfinger, with the exception of Rusty Cage. Yeah, I, I that wasn't the big one for me. For me, it was I, I chose Super Unknown because that's my number three. And I I, uh, I went and saw them in '96 uh, at Lollapalooza with Metallica, uh, Soundgarden, Screaming Trees, 
and it was just phenomenal. I almost enjoyed them more than Metallica. I, I can see that because it definitely seemed like they would be a like really good, interesting band. And because what really blew me away about this is the fact like this this has some in has insane time signatures in it. Like they just I, I, I don't know a ton about music theory. But these are some wacky ass uh, times, you know. Just Jesus Christ pose for God's sake. He's just all over the place. I mean, I it's like actually just to go like Jesus Christ pose is lit, as the children would say. Like, yeah, there. I was really surprised at how much I love this album so much so that it ended up on my number two spot. Yeah. It was a regular listen when I first got my car, man. I just fucking listened to it all the time. But yeah, it's like super unknown. I I was just debating doing that one, but it, when I went to Bad Finger, it's because it was done by uh, you had a cover. Uh, I say Johnny Cage. Johnny Cash uh, covered Rusty Cage, so that obviously means Bad Motorfinger is a superior album. <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to argue that one. <laughs> but for my number one spot is Nirvana's Nevermind, which it did actually, again, going into it, I was expecting, you know, Dirt to be number one. I was kind of going, yeah, so Nirvana would probably be number two because this album was all killer, no filler. Like, I mean, if you were going to say there's a weak song on here, it would maybe be Territorial Pissings. Even then, that it's like this is this song. This album is like very much uh, accessible without being too poppy, and everything is balanced. Like there's you know all the hard hitting fast songs, but then there's really slow songs, and they don't feel like they clash in any way. It's just it's a perfectly well put together album with pretty much like I said, every song is a banger. I'm burnt out on this album. I think it's horribly overrated. I, it's my number seven. But I also just, it's, I was there at the time. How old are you when this came out? Uh, let's see, this was 91, I was 10. Okay, so I mean, you probably experienced it like everybody else did. But I gotta tell you, there was a time when I was like really into this. And like a year later, I was so fucking burnt out and exhausted. And I just couldn't take it anymore. I, 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 I had trouble listening to it this time. There's some later tracks that I really enjoy, but the, the hits, it's just because they played on MTV so fucking much. And it's why I have trouble with uh, Pearl Jam, why they didn't rank higher, because fucking I can't stand uh, Jeremy. And, and, you know, just even flow. It's, it's exhausting. Yeah, well, that's a, that is the problem with a lot of these things, too, is these are, sure that a lot of these are, Big, you know, big name albums that we do have, you know, fatigue when it comes to. Yes, you're right. Nirvana, especially Smells Like Teen Spirit, was everywhere and is still kind of everywhere. It is played, it it still shows up a lot. Yeah, I, if I hear Teen Spirit, I fucking flip it as fast as humanly possible. I cannot ever listen to that song again. But what's the one? I'm terrible with song titles, okay? Just that's the way it is. Uh, one baby to another says, you know, that one, which one's that one? Uh, oh God, what is that? Uh, Towards the end. 
I really enjoyed that. I've loved that song for so long, and I just I always thought that should have been a hit. Uh, not in Bloom, I don't think. No, no, that was one of the God. singles. Well, it shoot, I'm it's okay, it's it, okay. Yeah, yeah. It was on. They actually had it on. I think the first rock band, and I'm trying to remember what the damn side was. Yeah, it. Is it you know something in the way is a is a great closer. Uh, I mean, to be fair, some of the songs are actually better off of uh, when they when they did the acoustic, you know, stuff. Or, yeah. So. All right, we are done with our top ten list. I know you all hate my guts. I understand. I'm controversial. I'm outrageous. I'm a contrarian. Be cool. <laughs> well, heck. well, heck, I mean, I think a lot of people would be very bored by my number one. But all sorry. right. So, we're off to the comic book events of 1990. Uh, you went first the last time. I'll go this time um, with the independent events of 1990. Valiant Comics debuts, which was, I think, Defiant Comics. And then it got combined or something like that. I can't remember. Jim Shooter was involved somewhere in the middle there after he left Marvel as their main editor. A new universe fell apart. And Valiant Comics, yes, they did fall apart for a while after they got bought by Acclaim and got renamed Acclaim Comics uh, to tap into their uh, video game industry. Uh, well, the only game we ever got out of that was, what, Turok, I think? There might have been another one. Shadow Man, maybe? Yeah, I think they did have a Shadow Man game. But so. they fell apart. But then all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, like five, six years ago, I think, is when they just exploded. And they're like the hottest indie comic label around. And they just, they really focused on uh saving the franchises that they already had and and just beefing up the 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 stories i think the only thing i've ever read from from them is uh quantum and woody yep i was gonna say the same thing i've read all of them but quantum and woody is really the only thing that i ever cared for back then um but it's just kind of nice to see at least one or two independent comics from that era are still around i think it's i mean image hasn't debuted yet so it's basically just valiant and uh Dark Horse, but only Dark Horse stayed in business the whole time. Yeah, but then Dark Horse has always been odd, because most of what they've done is survive based on uh, their licensing yeah. more than and that's, their, their independent. That's the thing with all independent labels, though, because even Valiant Comics started off by licensing the old characters that Gold Key had, uh, which I believe was at one time owned by Archie Comics. And, uh, or Dell, or something like that. Because um, Turok, uh, Magnus Robot Fighter, um, I can't remember, there's like four of them where they were purchased from that company and then they lost the license and they're off somewhere. Um, other independent companies, uh, Fright Night, Real Ghostbusters, and Terminator all end over at Now Comics, a very small but uh, interesting label because they would they started doing like kind of that pattern of licensing... Uh, properties that people knew and uh, then trying to launch their own titles in the middle there they went out of business the next year uh, just the sales fucking blue goats um, but then was revived for like five more years by a different company that kind of righted the ship for a little while but then just they realized the comic division wasn't doing well so they just just closed it all down and no one remembers this fucking company <laughs> but they're responsible for um that controversial horse shit with married with children. Do you remember when parents were losing their mind over married with children? And it was I do remember, yeah. part of it was the show, but part of it was the comic book. 
And um, then uh, the Fright Night comic book picked up after part two. And everybody knows probably that's one of my favorite movies of all time. And sadly ended right before the final battle between uh, Charlie Brewster and his best friend, Evil Eddie. Uh, and then Terminator is notorious because it introduced Alex Ross to the world. Uh, his very first work was for that comic book. Okay. I don't think I've seen. I don't think I've seen those issues. Then they're pretty good. It's called The Burning Earth. I think it's technically a spinoff. After the series ended with uh, issue seventeen, they did a mini series called Burning Earth. Yeah, that definitely doesn't sound familiar. But then again, uh, it's like Dark Horse has uh, gone and reprinted a lot of their stuff in omnibuses. Yeah, and so, I, I believe it's part of that. Yeah. Yeah. So it, I might have read it just without ever realizing I had read it. Um, over at DC Comics, Grant Morrison ends his uh, critically acclaimed run on Animal Man, a guy that nobody gave a shit about before Grant Morrison came along, and kind of people stopped caring as soon as he left. Um, but oh, he God, did that final that final issue is beautiful. It yeah. is so freaking good. I think Jeff Lemire probably bought him is the only other guy that's able to bring him back. Oh yeah, and his run is amazing too. But he also he turned it into a uh, horror comic. Yeah. Whereas uh, uh, Morrison's was really a deconstruction of comics in general. Right, right. Yeah, it's a different vibe. Um, Aquaman was basically dead as a doornail when it came to popularity in the '80s. Uh, so in 1990, Peter David decided he wanted to relaunch the whole thing, but he starts off with a miniseries called The Atlantis Chronicles, giving the history before Aquaman was supposed to start. And it was very critically acclaimed. It wasn't a huge seller, but, but it got enough buzz that that's what got him uh, able, able to relaunch it. And, and it went on for a very long time. I think it's still the most successful run of Aquaman, like 75 issues or something like that. How long was it before they cut off Aquaman's hand and replaced it with a trident? You know, I read it, I don't know, like four or five years ago. I feel like it's kind of early in the run, like issue 11 or something. I never read it, but I remember seeing in, uh, seeing like ads when I'd read other uh, comics that like Superman stuff. Yeah. See, uh, now, now the Jeff Jones run was even more successful, but the problem is, is DC Comics has this thing in their head where they have to reboot everything every two years now instead of just letting it be successful. It's like a season of a TV show. It's like, I, I have read the New 52 Aquaman stuff, and I did like that. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, I, I think I think Aquaman's been very good for the last five or six years. Um, uh, another character that we can never seem to get right, uh, no matter how hard they try, even when Jeff Jones is on there, it was so short-lived that Hawkman <laughs> uh, is killed. He's killed every few years because no one knows what to do with him. And uh, in 1990, they launched a miniseries called Hawk World, which decided to uh, plant him on their home world of Thanagarian, I think, right? Yes. Thanagarian, yeah. Um, where they're basically space cops. And that was very successful and very mature. Um, and that went for like three or four years before Zero Hour, and they decided to relaunch him as a normal Earth-based superhero. Yeah, I, I remember most of my, my Hawk, uh, Hawkman, Hawkgirl uh, stuff was all from like uh, the uh, Justice League cartoons right yeah but even then that's they seem to like tie in like the weird resurrection stuff that uh, they were doing plus the alien stuff plus all that other stuff yeah. and it's just trying to condense into one thing it's been a fucking nightmare i'm sure uh 
Let's see, I have Batman Digital Justice, a very, very hyped piece of shit. But it was a digitally based uh, comic. They used, you know, just computers to design it instead of hand-drawn art. Um, and they hyped this thing like crazy, and it is unreadable. <laughs> it's fucking... They did the same thing with Iron Man, I think, right around the same time. I definitely remember the uh, the ads for that. Yeah. Uh, and I, even, at, even at the time when those were coming out, I thought it looked like crap. Uh, Tim Drake debuts in A Lonely Place of Dying, one of the best Batman storylines of all time. He takes on Two-Face, uh, and he deals with the fact that he's exhausted, that he can no longer fight the same way he did before because he's got no one watching his back or bringing him back to reality when he has his rage. Uh, and then Tim Drake comes in and becomes the best Robin there's ever been. I will 100% agree, although I will only slightly disagree with uh, he's the best Robin for Bruce Wayne because uh, when what's his name uh, when Robin number one oh, came back well then then I go he's he was perfectly paired with uh, Damian Wayne but that's oh, you know, I forgot I there. that's kind of when I started to phase out of comics so I didn't I didn't get to experience a lot of that that it's not not the same kind of uh, dynamic. But it is sort of the same thing where you just have the gruff and angry, you know, one of them being gruff and angry, one of them being a little more lighthearted and cheery. And, yeah, it's Tim Drake definitely is best Robin. Yeah, because, uh, you know, nobody really liked Jason Todd. He was annoying and out of control. And then and, and, uh, Dick was just too, ah, shocks, you know, old school. When he became Nightwing, he became phenomenal. But until then, he was just restrained by the Robin costume. Even when he was in New Teen Titans, you, you, they wrote that into the character, is that he was 18, and he was like, why am I still dressing like this? This is stupid. It's like, yeah, Tiffany Brown was fine. Yeah, they're fine. There's nothing wrong with them. I just, I, I really think there's something about Tim. Of course, and it's also, I was the same exact age as he was when he debuted. Yeah, which, which would definitely help, because, yeah, it, it was... Obviously older than me when the when the character came out, but he was yeah he's my Robin. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, the one thing I forgot over in Independent Comics we got the debut of Men in Black. Not a lot of people remember it was a comic book. Uh, and I think it's I think it really kind of got noticed later, like I think three years later when it got picked up by Malibu Comics, and uh, and then of course we know it's a massive movie franchise. Um, we have the debut of Madman, which I think is a really underrated, very fun comic, but it doesn't come out as much as it used to. It's, it's a little more sporadic. I've tried. I've tried, and I just, I can't get into is it. Is it too 90s kitsch? A little bit, but it's also, I think, Mike Allred, I think, is a little, he's kind of a little too in love with, with himself, but then again, that, that seems to be a lot of, a lot of comic writers. Okay, yeah. things. But because um, yeah, I I'll say I love a lot of Bendis' stuff, but yeah, Bendis is also same. You know, yeah, same he loves the dialogue. <laughs> but yeah, it, and I think it's also yeah the, the pop art style that he has is interesting and can work for some stuff, but I don't know. It just it's never sat right with me. Oh, okay, and then finally. Uh, Frank Miller moves over to Dark Horse, uh, and then just he's just his hard boiled. I think is really critically acclaimed. Uh, Martha Washington, I think debuts. Give me Liberty debuts. Uh, I think most people just remember him now for Sin City, but he really was a driving force over at Dark Horse. 
that's, for Frank Miller, that's yeah. I never really read a lot of the stuff. Uh, not mainly because every time I see it, I hate the art. Yeah, it's a little rough. It's not my style. It's not my taste. Also, as I get older, I realize his writing is just purposely like just trying to be against the system instead of just being a good story. I think his RoboCop scripts, no matter how many times they've interpreted, are fucking garbage. <laughs> It's and like, the spirit, spirit less said the better. <laughs> yeah, it's like Sin City I'll give some, at least a little bit of it, some respect to because it's, you know, the use of white space in it is, is amazing, more so than anything else about it. Yeah. You know. All right, so that's it from my side. On to Marvel Comics. Oh, there's a lot of it. And we since we talked about Frank Miller, Electro lives again by Frank Miller and Lynn Farley, uh, where this graphic novel that came out uh, after, you know, Electra had been killed, of course, uh, and part at one point, I think, resurrected uh, and then killed again or something. Yeah. I, don't, I can't read Daredevil because it, it's like this. Yeah, I read, um, that, uh, I read that graphic novel. It's not bad. Yeah, it's like, you know, Matt Murdock is haunted by these dreams of a resurrected Electra and finds out that she has been, you know, resurrected but then is killed again anyway but then she isn't dead at the end uh, you know I <laughs> I'm sure if you like Daredevil, this is amazing but how can you keep track of all this stuff? Like, I love the X-Men and I can at least keep, you know, half the time I can barely keep track of who's alive and who's dead Although, at this point in continuity, that doesn't really matter. Uh, okay, adjectiveless Spider-Man debuts. Oh, it's the right, right, yeah, the writing debut of Todd McFarlane. What a bunch of pretentious fucking horseshit. I even knew this as a teenager. I was like, why is this six issues? This fucking, what was it called? Torment, I think is the first story. And it's just, the lizard is on a, a rampage. Uh, I think there's some shaman queen or whatever you, uh, controlling him. Uh, and it's just so much padding. It's just glorified jerk-off artwork. And the series was like that the whole way until Eric Larson came in. And yes, his art is kind of wild and crazy too, but the guy knows how to write. Look, Savage Dragon is still going. It's like on 300 issues, and I still entertain as fuck. Well, <laughs> Yeah, but he walked away from that shit. And Spawn, I have never got into Spawn. I didn't get into the dark heroes of the 90s. It just That's not my jam. But this, the thing is, this comic broke sales records. Yeah, and, yeah. and granted, while it, I, it's hard to say that it kicked off, it definitely really made the whole specu uh, spe uh, speculator market thing. You know, basically giving Marvel and DC so many bad ideas in oh, pursuit yeah. sales. And then I think if you bought 50 issues of the first one, you got a silver foil ink or something like that. It was it's so stupid. But you're right, I'm pretty sure it started here. Yeah, it's like, it's like this also really did kind of start the artist as a rock star thing. Yes. Because, I mean, granted, we have at this point Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee have been working especially Marvel, you know, they've been working pretty steadily and are kind of known. But really, this it, this is the, the beginning of it, really kind of starts this where these people become a brand. 
So, uh, Crazy the Galaxy got uh, a new lease on life. Yes, and I, uh, when I found out who was uh, in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie, I was like, these aren't the guys from the comic book I read growing up. And uh, this is... Uh... So they introduced in issue, I think, 11 or 13, uh, Space Ghost Rider of the Future. And I was reading it in the dark with a flashlight, and I got in trouble and got tore up. And I'll never forget that. And it's my oh, own damn fault. <laughs> I did not realize they had a Space Ghost Rider there because that they ended up introducing one a couple of years ago. Yeah, it was a big deal. Uh, but I don't remember much else from that series. It was something that was like good art from Jim Valentino, and I don't remember anything else. So, but when you see them in that second movie, I'm pretty sure it's the second movie, those cameos, like, oh, right, those are the Guardians of the Galaxy that I know. Wait, who are the Guardians of the Galaxy now? You know, I was like so confused. Yeah, because if you the movies, the only character you would know from this really is Yondu. Everyone else, yeah, like the little cameos at the end of the film, the other Ravengers are them. Uh, but yeah, basically Jim Valentino took, took the helm because uh, basically Star Trek Next Generation was popular, so Tom DeFalco went, hey, we need a space comic again. And like he got uh, Jim Valentino, he uh, plotted the series through like 50 issues, but they only got 29 of them before uh, up and co-founding him. Oh. And I've never it? Shadow Hawk, this. right? Shadow Hawk. Uh. <laughs> yeah. I I've never read this run. Like when the when they you talked about the films, like that's actually the Guardians of the Galaxy stuff that I read. Yeah. Was uh in this run. Uh, Nomad. Miniseries debuts. Is this when he had a baby and long hair and a fucking shotgun? I don't know. I think it um, is. No, no, let's see. Well, here's, here's the thing. Okay. Uh, the Nomad series. Well, let's start with this. Uh, Jack Monroe was the Bucky of the 1950s Captain America. And when, uh, F- while Captain America in his comics uh, decided to become the captain, he was, after being Nomad, uh, they gave Jack Monroe the Nomad thing, including the stupid ass cape yeah. and everything. And he, he was in, in a character in the Cap uh, comics off and on for a couple of years. And then they said, you know what? We need to uh, reinvent this character. We're going to turn him into this, uh, you know, he's become a vigilante like the Punisher in Daredevil. And it's going to be, you know, commentary about the state of the country. Now, like I said, it, I don't remember if this is the miniseries or if it was the series itself, but at some point, he goes and kidnaps the uh, infant daughter from a drug-addicted mother and then just runs around all lone wolf with a cub. With yeah, this that was a little on the nose, I thought. And that's the thing. It's like, it's, you know, this is the 90s, so, of course, all drug users are monsters, and the safest place the baby could be was with a psycho shot of <laughs> Seriously, these are fucking weird. Yes. But I've seen some of this. Like, it has been like a little more mid to late of the series. And it's okay. But nothing, you know, I'll be honest, what I read is nothing that spectacular. It was just kind of uh, 90s drug, anti drug moralizing more than anything else. Now, New, uh, New Warriors also debuted. Yeah. 
That I, I I loved reading that at the time. Not so much now. I actually can't stand Mark Bagley's artwork. I know he was very well loved, but something about it always bothers me. Hmm. Oh, I can I totally get it. I, on my uh, Marvel Unlimited app. I've got a good chunk of this already uh, set up to read. Most of what I've read from New Wars was around the time that uh, uh, it was Ben Riley's as uh, the Scarlet Spider. In oh, okay, yeah. Mine, mine's the initial run when it's, you know, uh, they added Nova and they introduced Night Thrasher. Still sounds like a name for a masturbator. Seriously, Night Thrasher. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who had already, I think he had already just got off his own or a series done by Ditko. Um, I think one of the last things was done by Ditko. Um, we have... Marvel Boy and Firestar finally being introduced uh, from yeah, the cartoon. And Namorita. Yes, yes, I think that's it. I think that's it. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. It's like, it's a. Uh, what I've, I've seen of it, it just basically just kind of goes. It's kind of like it was the mutants, uh, what humans were to the X Men. This was supposed to be. For the Avengers. Yeah, and, and kind of pulling in a little bit of that, the, uh, the Teen Titans gap. Yeah, because yeah, there was you know, a lot of drama, a lot of uh, interpersonal stuff tied into, oh yeah, let's go punchy-punch our own new group of supervillains. But uh, we also had uh, the Ghost Rider Volume 3 with Danny Ketch becoming the new uh, Ghost Rider. I have another story where I got in trouble. <laughs> I deserved every bit of it. Um, <laughs> I was at a convenience store and I picked up Ghost Rider number one and the lady just grabbed it. You know how some people grab comics and they press their thumb down to hold it? <laughs> and I was a very bad boy and I bitched and moaned about it. And my mother said, you grabbed it from comics for four months and I deserved it because I am an ass. <laughs> Uh, yeah, for most of us, uh, I don't think Johnny Blaze was really part of our lives. He was a distant memory for like I think eight years. I think is the last time we had seen him, like in the um... shit. It's one of those like really... defenders. Was it? No, it was champions. It was the champions that lasted like nineteen issues or something like that, and then just kind of faded away. And uh, you know, the whole horror comic uh, boom of the seventies died off. And then all of a sudden, the horror comics became popular again. I think Ghost Rider is the reason. Because that was, uh, this, yeah, definitely is my Ghost Rider. His motorcycle's fucking rad. It's so much cooler than the first. I'm still shocked that the Ghost Rider hasn't never. Have they done Danny Catch yet? Or did they just go from Johnny Blaze to the new one? Uh, what do you mean? But there's a new Ghost Rider that was in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I think, which is in the comics. Oh, now. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he has, yeah, he hasn't done, uh, they haven't put Danny Catch anywhere. Yeah, the, yeah the, I can't remember the guy's name, but yeah, he's got the muscle car. That I, I was not thinking I would ever have liked because I'm not a huge, like, in a general sense, not a huge Ghost Rider fan overall. Like, uh -huh. I've read comics I've dug, and, you know, there have been stuff I've enjoyed. But I kind of went, why are you doing it with a muscle car? That's just weird. You know, I, I don't know. And then I read it and I went, holy crap, this is pretty fucking awesome. This, this is I I like the newer Ghost Rider more than I like either Catch or uh, or uh, Blaze as a character. Yeah, it's I, I don't think it holds up that well. I I never really got into horror comics. Uh, something about it is so self-contained, I guess, which is good for people who aren't part of the big universe reading stuff. But um, I don't know. I just never really got into the villains and the storyline and stuff like that. So it just kind of didn't interest me. Which 
Um, it's kind of sad because I know some people were like really into the whole Morbius and and uh, uh, the Spirits of Vengeance. That's what it was. That that yeah. that run for a couple years in in Marvel Comics. Darkhold is a really good is a really good series uh, with the Darkhold Redeemers. Yeah, I, I read it. I, just, I couldn't get into it. I, I guess it was just a vibe that I never got into with horror comics. I don't even get into space comics that much either. It's usually just the street based uh, characters. Let's see. Uh, Fantastic Four number three forty seven. The new Fantastic Four debut. Oh fuck! I was there. Oh my god! That was a disaster because they're off in some uh, alternate universe and they introduced who. Well, it's not that they were on in a different universe. It's basically that the, uh, they're allegedly killed by a scroll uh, named Delilah, uh, who's disguised as uh, Sue. But yes, basically a new team is put together uh, by this scroll uh, made of Spider-Man, the Hulk, Ghost Rider, and Wolverine. And they're basically just going. They're just there to uh, protect the, uh, protect her from the scrolls that are out to kill her. Uh-huh. And then basically, it just uh, it only lasts till issue three forty nine, because then the real Fantastic Four escape their captivity and are defeated by a tiny moppet, uh, Franklin Richards. Uh, you know, hitting basically hitting up on an elevator button. It's the dumbest. Uh, defeat of a villain because it's just Franklin hits, hits the up button oh there's my family I'm going to untie you oh look Fantastic Four is alive and they beat up the bad guys it's like wow this is okay so that is ridiculous in my opinion but the best Fantastic Four story takes place immediately after that 349, 50, and 51 are um, uh, this ultimate fucking amazing battle uh, between they're all there but it's basically reed richards and dr doom going at it uh using these time differential bands on their waist or whatever where they can jump in and out between milliseconds and they fight each other that way and the fantastic four or the rest of them are all watching this but they only get like a glimmer of what's happening and it's just there's, Dr. Doom thinks he has all of them trapped in his castle, and he has all these traps, like uh, a vertical water wall with an uh, image hologram thing, and, uh, and Johnny Blaze flies through that, and he's extinguished. Um, I can't remember what happens to Invisible Girl and the thing. He is in a fake suit. He is Ben Grimm now. He is no longer the thing, but his girlfriend, Miss Marvel, got also hit. Guys, so complicated. She got hit. Uh, with the same cosmic ray, and she got mutated, so she looks like the thing now. Then he... Wait, wait, no, 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 I'm wrong. He, I can't remember if he's in the suit or not, but he gets mega-thinged. Like, he's insanely rocky for a while. And I think somehow he accidentally gets cured, so he builds a suit the exact same. But while battling Doctor Doom, he gets hit by a cosmic ray, and he busts out of his thing suit into the real thing, and that's how it ends. He goes, ain't nothing like the real thing. And, uh... He traps Mr. Fantastic by making him go down a tunnel, and the walls shut behind him. He's trying to find his way out, and he keeps getting narrow and more narrow and more narrow and more narrow until so he's trapped in this tiny little itty-bitty space. And for a claustrophobic person like me, that's horrifying. And then he uses his belt to scrape a tiny little hole in the cement, or in the brick or whatever, the castle, and escapes. It's so fucking awesome. But it's And then they get in trouble because they, they fuck with time. They're not allowed to do that. 
So the time police come in or whatever and arrest and put them on trial, it's, it's so amazing. But Walt Simonson is a highly underrated artist, writer. Uh, most people know him for his run on Thor. But that run on Fantastic Four is so awesome. Yeah, like, I, I know some of that stuff from, from that era, but at the same time, Fantastic Four is one that I've dipped into and out of so much that I can never keep any of the stories straight. Yeah, it was a big thing in our family because it's the only comic book like that, other than Archie, uh, that um, my mother read. Uh, so she knew the whole Fantastic Four, you know, like when the movies came out, she was super excited. And uh, my Uncle Greg only collected three comics, Tomb of Dracula, which, you know, we weren't allowed to read because we were too little, Spider-Man, which I read all of, uh, up to like issue 218, and then Fantastic Four. So I know the Fantastic Four, that era, like in and out at the time. But the only thing that stuck with me after all these decades is that one storyline, and it's so bananas. Well, here's some banana stuff. <laughs> Sorry, I went on a long tangent there. I oh, no, no worries. No worries. Uh, Numians 87, uh, we get the debut of Cable. At this point, he has no ties to Cyclops and Madeline Pryor. He's just this old soldier with a metal arm and psychic powers for the future. Uh, and pouches. Fucking pouches. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, yes, he is kind of almost everything. Him, Carnage, uh... There's a, there's a few characters that are like everything wrong with 90s, but it, it takes a few years. Then it will actually end up being an interesting, well-rounded character. But right now, he's basically just an ang angry old man who shouts at clouds. Yeah, it's uh, it's not my favorite era. I, I, I kind of like the New Mutants before that, and then of course, X-Force happens after that, and uh, yeah. Rob LaField becomes a fucking thing. I think Cable's more interesting when it, after Rob LaField left. Lightfield? LaField? Lightfield, Lightfield, yeah. It's, uh, like I said, it takes a little while after after Lightfield leaves, and yeah, we'll kind of figure out what they want to do with him. Like I said, at this point, he's just, uh, he's just an angry, angry old bastard who just, he's going, he's going to militarize these young kids. And it, after, after he dies and then comes back, kind of uh, discovers that he has a heart and uh, actually wants to talk about feelings and shit. And he actually, like I said, he, becomes a good, he actually becomes a good character. And especially in like the mid to late 2000s, really becomes a good character. You know, now his main villain slash clone, Strife, actually showed up in 86. Yeah, I remember that. But fuck, yeah, fuck Strife. He sucks. He has a stupid helmet. He can't. He can't turn his head and see anything. That's how. That's how terrible his helmet is. It's just it's blades and blades. Uh, we also had debut uh, Gambit, which I keep not seeing exactly which one was his first debut because it's Uncanny X Men Annual fourteen. I think it is the first one. And uh -huh. then he shows up in Uncanny 266, but it might be the other way around. Yeah, I love Gambit. I, I have, I think I have this issue, and that was worth a ton of money for. Well, I did have this issue, but it was worth a ton of money for a while, and I uh, sold it for a nice chunk of change. But yeah, at the first, you're like, who is this weirdo? And you don't realize that he's, you know, entangled with the uh, the Morlocks, or not. Well, I mean, he's kind of, in a way, a little responsible for the Mutant Massacre. 
Um, but I think Gambit's a great character. I, it's really weird they never got that movie going with Channing Tatum because he seems like he's still really a popular actor and a, a popular character. But, but for whatever reason, not happening. Well, I, I don't know what necessarily they'd want to do with him in the film. Uh, yeah, he's definitely an interesting character. And uh, like when his, he's this charming rogue character who... Um, you know, Rob the Rich gives the poor sort of style to him, or more accurately, Rob the Rich then kind of keeps with him for himself, and occasionally helps out the poor. Yeah. But he's, uh, he's one of the characters like Wolverine. Kind of, uh, became a parental, not parental, but a, a, uh, a dental piece for a young kid. <laughs> This mentor figure to young young girls for some reason, like kind of like Wolverine would be, and it's it's so bizarre because he is such a sexual character, like almost like pornographically so, <laughs> and yet and yet he seems to be the like one of the few people I would trust around a young woman because he hey at the you can time, be an ethical pervert. I'm proof of that. <laughs> Yeah, he, he definitely seems to know the you know where the boundaries are, and will only only be innuendoed to certain to certain people. Beyond that, he's just like a, an awesome big brother. Yeah. But okay. Uh, also, we get the uh, Michael Collins Deathlock. Oh, uh, I guess. I guess. I'm fine. Oh. It's just another one of those. Oh, the silver anger. Yay. You know, I had it. I got it because everybody was speculating it was gonna be a red hot comic. It's fine. I just, I'm not into it. Um, I like the seventies. I like the seventies Deathlock better. I Dwayne McDuffie made this character so much fun. This was, you know, he had the computer that he was constantly kind of fighting with. Well, is this in the beginning of the comic though? Was Dwayne McDuffie the writer in the beginning? Because I don't recall. Yeah. Was he really? Maybe I'm just not remembering this very well. But I just remember a lot of it about being the hype and the fucking. That every that, you know, gimmick covers, gimmick covers. Yeah, that, I'll say there was a gimmick covers for it, but <laughs> but yeah, it, the, it was an interesting thing where you had this guy who was basically trying to fight with his programming to keep you know to be non-lethal, even though the computer's like, dude, kill, kill him, shoot, shoot, die. And it's it made it very good. You know, I really, really, really like that series. Okay, I'll give it another shot then. Okay. Uh, Armor Wars 2. Did you ever uh, read that? Fuck yes. Well, I read the second one. The second one's fine. The first one is an absolute classic. I actually have both of them around here somewhere. Um, it's just, it, it didn't feel that fresh with the second one. I feel like they were like, oh, the first one was such a hit. Let's do it again. And they didn't have anything new to say. And that's, that, that was my problem. Yeah, it's just, it's basically Tony Stark uh, ends up getting paralyzed and... Uh, he ends up getting, like, mentally controlled armor, but the idea is that the enemies are actually doing – people are doing this so that he can get uh, mind-controlled or some, something like that. And really what this ends up doing is basically setting the stage for War Machine. That's, I think, the only thing that really is important about yeah. this story. Yeah. But uh, did you read Thanos Quest? Is this when Silver Surfer is looking for to prove whether or not Thanos is dead? 
Well, no, this is the uh, miniseries that basically because uh, Thanos yeah is resurrected by death. Uh, this is like right before I think the Silver Surface stuff is capping alongside it, but basically Thanos is uh, resurrected by death and. He's charged with wiping out half of the universe. Okay, okay, yeah. You know what, I did read. I think it's uh, incorporated into my Silver Surfer uh, epic collections. Okay, yeah, because Surfer is definitely a big part of, uh, of this storyline and uh, of, well, I think of what follows, because this is effectively the prelude to the uh, universe. Uh, Infinity Gauntlet, and Infinity Crusade, and all that stuff. And basically, it's Thanos ends up discovering that the Infinity Gems have the power to wipe out the uh, half to complete his task with just a snap of his fingers. And basically, the story is, effectively, Thanos is going around and kicking the shit out of the most powerful beings of the galaxy and taking their gems. Yeah, It's I mean, it's only two issues, so it's not the most lightning comic, but it is the directly leads into Infinity Gauntlet. Right, right, right. And that makes it probably maybe the most uh, important prelude of any of these uh, comics ever. Let's see. Uh, he's a future present. I don't even remember this one. I read, I read that, and I was like, I don't recall this at all. Well, you don't recall it because it makes no sense. I mean, the best part about it is that it kind of puts a lot of the Days of Future Past universe into some form of context. Uh-huh. Because you get an idea of who is the Houndmaster, this villain uh, called Ahab. So you kind of get the idea of, okay, why is Rachel Summers so fucked up with, you know, her past and all the stuff that she did when she was in the, in the, this dystopian future. But it's Franklin Richards from the, from that thing who was killed, but never mind. Uh, he's, he comes uh, to the, comes to the past searching for his love, Rachel Summers. And, you know, and he brings along Ahab on accident. And it fights happen, and it's confusing, and overall, you just get uh, basically this super ultra, you know, powerful Franklin Richards is just a ghost. Okay. Who came to the past because we needed to have a uh, thing for our annuals this year. Like, it's mostly important just for context, and Ahab pops in every now and then, and he is actually a pretty damn good threat, even though he basically looks like a future pirate. <laughs> but last is the most the most important thing that of all these ones, and that's the Extinction Agenda. Oh my god, okay, so I remember reading this at the time. I don't understand what was going on over at X-Factor. They, they have no budget. That was the worst fucking art I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> but it's a good story. Oh, yeah. Because basically the apartheid uh, allegory uh, genocian government decides to go and uh, 
attack the expansion. Basically, they're being, I can't believe I'm going to say this in a sentence, but they're being guided by the de- evil, demonically immortal cyborg robot man, Cameron Hawk. Yeah, oh my god, I still remember that. I want you to look up the covers. Look up the covers of X Factor during this uh, era. They're the worst thing I've ever seen. I can't believe a major company released them. Uh, yeah. Well, the interior art of these ones are not that good either. Yeah. But it, this is nine issue, uh, nine issue storyline, three issues a piece in the three main, uh, three main X titles. You know that would be X Factor, X uh, New Mutants, and and X Men. And basically, uh, some of the X Men are captured. They're taken to be turned into mutant slaves. Uh, everybody uh, strikes back. This is also at the time when somebody talked about comics. X Men had kind of been disbanded by going through. Oh yeah, the, yeah. Seems yeah. perilous. It turns out Havoc ended up uh, showing up in Nocha and was one of their uh, evil mutant hating uh, policemen. So Havoc sucks, and uh, so all these things happen. Uh, the alien mutant warlock uh, gets killed. Uh, Wolf Wolfsbane, uh, who's the young uh, Scottish uh, hyper religious uh, young young lady from the New Mutants, gets uh, turned into a mutate. But she can retain her mental uh, faculties if she just stays as a wolf. So from this point on, for a long time, she's just in wolf form. Huh. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And. Basically, this is the thing that leads the New Mutants into becoming X-Force. Uh, the original five X-Men end up disbanding X-Factor and become uh, the X-Men. Government takes over X-Factor, and then it becomes its own mutant team, and that's actually a better comic. Oh, yeah, the Peter David one where it's like Strong Guy and Havoc and Polaris leading the team, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was good. That's, that's a really good series. Uh but uh, this is another one that was part of that speculator market uh, because you had Lee and uh, Rob Lightfield both uh, doing art for this thing. So, you know, all these issues were worth were going to be worth lots and lots of money because we got rock stars. <laughs> all right. Is that it for this uh, segment? That is it. That is it for my, my Marvel side. All right, everybody. Uh, that is it. Uh, we're going to pause this briefly. Uh, John, where can we find you? I am on Twitter and both and Twitch as well under musician, M-Y-U-Z-I-S-H-I-O-N. All right. Thank you, everybody. We're going to pause really quick and then coming back with uh, my friend Kersey. We're going to be discussing Return of Living Dead and Day of the Dead. Alright everybody, it is the horror thriller segment of Hit Rewind. I'm your host Michael and Kersey is on the other side joining me for what two movies? Yes, we are now into year 1985 and I think this is probably the best pairing I think we've ever had. Except, did we do Howling and American Werewolf in London together? I think we did. Yeah, okay, so those two uh, I think might be slightly better. But, um... It's so funny thinking about these two movies and, and the the reaction to it when it came out and the way that we feel about them now. It's so strange. I mean, I love Return of the Living Dead, and that's the one that was hipper and, and more punk rock, obviously, and uh, faster moving. And that one did very well. Day of the Dead didn't. 
but it found its audience on video and now is heralded as you know a great film. Because they're so, they're also just very different kinds of comic movies, and they both just hit their mark perfectly at what they're going for. Yeah, I think Return of the Living Dead is my favorite zombie movie of all time. Yeah, definitely. In terms of just like you want to watch something for fun, that's uh, that's definitely up there for me. Yeah, it's not. There's nothing really going on, like uh, subtext and, and you know social commentary. It really doesn't have anything on its mind besides having a really good time. Yeah, it, it, it basically puts up front, it even comments that it is uh, basically a, a love letter to Romero zombie movies uh, and doing its, doing its own thing while paying homage. Yeah, it's, it's, I looked this up, and I guess what happened was is John Russo and George Romero had a split, and the agreement was you can take the franchise in this direction by calling it Of the Living Dead, whereas Romero would just call his stuff Of the Dead. So John Russo uh, wrote a book called Return of the Living Dead, which was supposed to be connected to the first movie, and then it got uh, rewritten by Dan O'Bannon, the guy who did uh, uh, Alien, and he directed it, and uh, it's, it's its own mythos and its own way of interpreting a zombie, a zombie you know, how the villain can be uh, killed and what it eats, and... Uh, I, I fucking love this movie. It's so yeah, much fun. It's, it's, it's like the rewriting of a, a vampire lore, you know, like every so often it comes out a new movie about vampires and they change a little bit just like how they work and operate. Yeah, and and I, I have to have mythos. When it comes to a monster, i got to have some sort of mythology and rules. Yeah, and you can't ask for a better opening than this movie. It, it just, like, perfectly executes the tone that it's going for, but also has... Uh, the, the scare factor going on. Yeah. I think mean, when, when they, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, the opening is like, it's based, it's literally telling a story. It's like inviting the audience on like a campfire story. Yeah, it's, it's good. And the, yeah, the actor is so good. Oh, and just like, it just envelops you in this amazing, creepy tale. And it, it's so interesting that it's basically using the lore of the Night of the Living Dead to do something, uh, something familiar and something new. And it's just so perfectly done. And then they take you down into the basement with those creepy tanks. Yeah. With the, the, the creepy mud zombie or whatever the fuck. Tarman. Yeah. The Which tar I bomb. believe I have a shirt of around here somewhere. Yeah, the most iconic uh, American zombie you can ask for. Yes. And um, and then going to the, uh, the the music kicks up once the, the canister sprays open. Um, our Two main characters pass out. We don't know what's going to happen to them. And then you see everything starts kind of like jumping alive. And then that's your opener. And it's like, Jesus Christ. This, this is incredible. Yeah, the special effects are astounding. Uh, I, they still hold up. I mean, there's really nothing. Even when they have the creature on the, the slab and it's telling them why it eats brains and stuff like that, I'm like, yeah, I know it's a rubber creature, but... Oh, man, the, the sound of its spine hitting the metal table. Yeah. It's... It just sends shivers down my spine. Everything. And the nice part is, is we had suffered. Okay, I know someone's getting mad here. I think there's something off about a lot of the Italian zombie movies. I just don't care for. There, we discussed in our very first episode the stark difference between Dawn of the Dead and Zombie, and there's something just really cheap knockoff, bare bones about the Italian horror films. And 
it was nice to get a zombie movie with a real budget behind it. I mean, this is a $6 million zombie flick, which is kind of unheard of. <laughs> and uh, I, it, the fucking thing moves like a rocket. If it's not the, the scare stuff, I mean, you don't really get that for, like, what, the first 40 minutes, like the big scare where the zombies really start to burst out of the ground. You're building up the characters, those four guys, and discussing the realities of what's in the bags, rabbit weasels, no, that's, you know, like, uh, I don't remember his name, but the guy who's at the mortuary, uh, him trying to understand what the fuck is going on and then trying to solve the problem is so much fun. Yeah, it ratchets up the tension from, like, a, a, a human perspective, not so much, oh, the end of the world thing, that comes later. Like, the first bit, like, the first arc really is, we there's a zombie now, and we have to destroy it so that no one finds out, because not only uh, is the military going to get involved, but, you know, the business owner is going to lose everything, and then we're going to lose our job, and so it becomes almost like a murder mystery. Yeah. Kind of thing, where trying to hide bodies and trying to figure out how are we going to do that and it goes into so much detail and you think that's really going to be the movie but that just makes everything worse and then it just immediately goes from like 95 percent uh to a thousand percent when the it, they cremate the body but that just fucks everything up because it goes into the into the sky creates clouds and then it rains and then just resurrects uh, 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 an entire uh, and there's no way I mean this movie's really nihilistic basically because there's no way out of this because once you get going that's it and I think that's why each sequel has basically been um, a reboot I, I think the second one I'm not going to watch I mean, we're not going to do the second one I just watched it this weekend and I was so annoyed um, the second one's not very good it, it, I think it's PG-13 Maybe, no, there's some gore in there. I don't know, but maybe it's possible. But I just like that we're wait. I'm wasting my time. Everything is dragged out. All the stuff that worked in the first movie, they either ditch or they expand so much. Like okay, so watching Tom Matthews and James Karen together is fucking hilarious in the first movie. And the second one, I'm with them for the first half hour, and then they just drag it out and drag it out. And there's so much of them now that I'm now sick of it. Yeah, but I think the best character. I think the third one. Uh, actually kind of picks it back up because it it takes basically just ignoring the second movie just kind of goes on yeah i remember the third one being really creative and wild so I, i'm going to discuss i want to discuss that one but i heard the fourth and fifth one are fucking just mm. oh i didn't even know there rave to the grave <laughs> um, well i mean the name's on point That's yeah uh don calpa that was his name as the mortician i think his character is really fun to watch like just decrypting everything that's happening and clue Gugger, um the owner of the other building uh the medical supply company is trying to skirt around the troops <laughs> he is, is great um but i also love spider uh played by miguel nunez um that mullet is horrifying but i think he is so much fun in this and uh i told that guy all the time like it's a way of life <laughs> oh no no, 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 Spider is uh, the African-American gentleman. No, no, he's, I know that's Spider. Uh, oh, okay. I don't even remember. Yeah, but it's just so funny how he's like, put your fucking clothes on, man. <laughs> <laughs> the suicide? Was that his name? Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh. I'm just looking right now. Suicide and Spider were both in the same year, also in Jason, uh, uh, Friday the 13th, The New Beginning, Part 5. Oh, I don't even remember Part that's the one without Jason, or the, the medical guy pretending to be Jason. That's, okay, they're at the uh, mental health facility. Right, right. Okay. Um, 
I joke about this all the time, but whenever we need more cashiers, I want to get on that 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 speaker and go send more cashiers. <laughs> the audio trick. There's a there's a thing I. Uh, I think at the very end of the movie, during the they replay some of the scenes, which is weird. Um, but they show the guy without the audio trick, and he's like, "Sign more paramedics!" <laughs> <laughs> so thank God they did the the, the audio trick with like it's just yeah, it's so. Another thing about the mortician, though, I forgot to mention is that there is kind of a historical background to his character being, I think, in hot um, but there's he's listening to German music. He's got the pipe. He oh. has like a German pistol, and he I think he says something in German when it starts raining. Yeah, know. he's a lot I younger. There was, there was some detail about that in there that they were going to expand on, but I think they decided to just not. Add yeah, connection because it really doesn't add anything to the movie. The, so I'm uh, kind of glad that they decided not to do that. Don Calipo was a lot younger than the character he was playing. That's why they dyed his hair white. Because I think the year before that, I had seen him in uh, the Star Chamber with Michael Douglas, and he, you know, he's just—he looks like he's 45 at most, uh, with really dark brown hair. Yeah, that, I, that's something I didn't catch on to, uh, but that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Also, because you you would have to be at least 65 and yeah. 85 for that to make sense. Um, when I saw the trailer for this on television when I was a child, I was convinced that was Rodney Dangerfield. Oh my god, yes. It looks so much like the bug eyes yeah. and the hair. And then we proceeded to run around the house as zombies <laughs> for the next hour until my grandmother told us to knock it off. <laughs> uh, this is one of the very first horror movies I've ever seen. Uh, it was on television really late at night. I, friend, I stayed up late with a friend of mine on a Saturday to watch it. And it, that it's this is a hell of a I think it might be really the first horror movie I've seen besides The Lost Boys. It's a hell of a way to start the, the genre. It also has a great subversion of expectations where you have the like the leader of the punk kids, uh, suicide, who is like very uh, very much a leader uh, type character. Yeah, and uh, so he's very strong, you know, like yeah, he's huge. Uh, he dies first. He, he immediately pretty much dies. Yeah. And interestingly enough, it, uh, it's actually Spider, the black character, who kind of becomes the leader. And I think that's an homage to the first uh, Night of the Living Dead. That makes sense, yeah. Um, and it's also kind of a subversion because, you know, it's usually like, oh, the black guy dies first in all these movies. So it's an interesting subversion of the genre and also an homage to yeah. the original. So. Can you imagine how hard this I'm trying to think about it now. It's been so long since I've seen it on television, but what the fuck did they do with Lydia Quigley being nude for so much of it? How did they cut around that? That must have a lot of pan and scan and just like editing out. It's mind-boggling to me. Yeah, that would have that would make for a really boring yeah. uh, TV viewing because there's going to be about 30% of the movie being cut. Yeah. Oh, and the end. She makes it at the end, too. I totally forgot about that. Oh, yeah. Like, 50% of it. The uh, the extension on her jaw is a hell of a good makeup idea, I think. That one was pretty fun. And they did it really quickly, so you can barely tell. So yeah. It's just disturbing enough that it's, um, it's just great. Now, answer me this. Are zombie jaws stronger than human jaws? Because I can't bite through a fucking skull. Yeah, apparently, I guess. Because, um... I think there is some, they, well, they do mention, oh, maybe they don't, I don't remember now, but that the, the chemical, there's so the spray on marijuana or whatever, <laughs> apparently it's supposed to make you stronger. Okay. But I think there is some sort of 
effect that it has. And I think the third movie actually did explain that later on. Oh, okay. And yeah, is this the first running zombies? Fast zombies, I guess you want to say. Yeah. They ditched that in the second movie, and I didn't like that. I thought the fact that they were more aggressive and that they move, like, I mean, not, not like the way they do it 20 days later, like Rage Virus, but they move pretty fucking fast. Oh, they run, yeah. yeah. They, they run at the speed of a human being, especially like the scene where they, they do send the paramedics and the cops, and they just kind of show up and find out, like, what the hell is going on, and then just immediately swamps yeah, on like, all it's sides. It's not like a... Now, now, I think that's the last thing I want to say about Return of the Living Dead. Do you want to move on to Day of the Dead? Yeah, definitely. But um, it's 100% please watch, buy it, whatever. You need to see it. Day of the Dead feels like the end of that type of zombie movie yes there'll be more like like i said return of the living dead and there's Ch- uh, chud 2 and stuff like that but it seems to be more of a joke after this uh, you know it's like the way they did in wax works i don't know if you've ever seen that you know it's just kind of meant as an end joke it doesn't seem like it's treated seriously for a very long time after day of the dead yeah i kind of to me it does seem like there's a lot of uh, more serious and more uh, movies that are definitely critical um, of the government are kind of been expunged. Uh, and it kind of reminds me of like right after 9-11, a lot of movies that immediately had to shoot patriotic or they were just cut. Yeah. Um, because this movie is definitely a criticism uh, of uh, the military. And it's kind of a shock to see a movie like this because you don't really see that anymore. Because like now, most movies about the army and the military are going to be very uh, positive, and this one really is not. I can see how, in the height of the eighties of uh, the Reagan era, yeah, when uh, how people can uh, would probably see this as being seen at the time. Yeah, I feel like it has more on its mind and on, even though the mind is the one that's been embraced by everybody. I feel like there's something that really was just bothering. Uh, George Romero during this whole Reagan, you know, Cold War, never-ending war, commentary on Vietnam as well, where it's just you're overwhelmed, you're losing your mind, and you just, you've never seen escape. Yeah, this is definitely the most pressing of the, of the original three movies. This is the one that really has no hope. I mean, the main characters at the end are just on, an, on their own island waiting for an island. Just like, it's the end of the series is the end of uh, humanity. It, I mean, I can see that because George Romero is very much a, a hippie. And so I think in the 60s and definitely the 60s and 70s, had a more like positive outlook in, um, in humanity. And I think that like the, the crushing militarism of the 80s just really kind of crushed the spirit. In this movie, this seems kind of like it's a passing log. Yeah. I'm looking at it right now. It's... Uh... It was released by a company named United Film Distrib- Distribution Company, and they're not really a big name, so maybe they just couldn't release the movie as wide. Also, it's in the middle of the summer. I don't know what the competition was in, in 85, but I didn't know this. It was a massive overseas. So that that's, it still means it's very profitable. But this is the one franchise... I feel like there's constant sequels and remakes and adaptations. I guess there's going to be a new TV show now. Mm. It just seems to leave it alone. But um, you you said you had uh, quite a bit, so I'm going to step back to say about this movie, and I'm just going to sit here and listen. Yeah, well, we'll see how this goes. I'm going to ramble a lot. Um, but I do think, honestly, this is the best of the original trilogy, and probably the best of any zombie movie. It's my favorite, uh, for sure. 
a lot of this really has to do is, is like I said, it's commentary on the military, especially during uh, the Reagan era. But it's also a commentary on movies in general, because like a lot of movies at the time started doing like the Macho Man, One Man versus a Thousand kind of movies. Uh, yeah, Rambo. And yeah, this movie is definitely like those type of people are are who's whom uh, society. And I love the fact that they have a full on conversation about about the concept of trying to take on the universe. You know, where it's sitting in the bunker, it's like, I, you know, we have to try to figure out like why zombies want to things and uh, how we can walk amongst them. The, of course, the military members are like, no, they actually want to kill them all. It's like, all right, how are you going to do that? You don't have the bullets, you don't have the guns, you don't have the people. Yeah. There's no other option. So I, I like that they delve into sort of like the more politics with zombies. And of course, it's very much about um, overseas conflict. Like, yeah, we're, we're and it, it, again, we're, we're amongst the never-ending war right now, and we're having the same conversation. So it's, just, it's really interesting to see um, the parallels between that time period and now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, definitely this is a very politically driven movie. It's also really interesting, and it advances zombies in a way that's unique. Like, zombies can communicate. Like, we learn more about how they work and how they operate. They still have, like, memories. And they can still, they, they can choose not to eat something or not to eat a person. And so it's really cool and really interesting to dive into uh, this expanded world where he's trying to turn zombies into something else. You know, like at first it's a commentary on racism, then it's a commentary on consumerism, and like now it's a commentary that, like, this is, these are people, we need to talk about this. And uh, so, anyway, he expands on it more in Land of the Dead, which is not. A great movie, but it is definitely a good follow up. Yeah. Um. To uh, Day of the Dead. So if you like Day of the Dead, check out Land of the Dead. It is pretty much a direct sequel. It's a. And it has a lot to say about like the mental state of people, like just going through constant trauma and how you deal with it. And some people get more psychotic. More people get withdrawn. I think. And um, I can't remember his name, but he, he, he's the one in the very beginning who's uh, <laughs> speaking. Of, <laughs> I didn't know that this, the track was used in the Gorilla song for the longest time. I just thought it was this random, hello, is anyone out there? Can I say this? The music in both are, are fantastic. But um, watching his mental state, you know, he loses his arm, he fucks up over and over, and then eventually just like has a break and decides to let all the zombies in. Sacrifices himself in such a hideous fashion. Yeah, the special effects are on top notch. Tearing people apart. Yeah, in disturbing, disgusting, up close and personal detail that makes that no longer fun or interesting. It's just scary. What do you think that this also might have damaged? Because this feels like it's NC seventeen. This feels even darker than the last one, and I maybe that's also well. NC seventeen didn't exist back then, so like it's unrated or X. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would definitely believe it if it was. Yeah. I, the moment in Dawn of the Dead when after they've done their shopping spree and after they've secured the mall, there's kind of this like 10 minute period where they're sort of reflecting on their actions and they kind of they realize that they don't really they, don't, they haven't achieved true happiness it's just fleeting. Yeah, it's the commentary of consumerism but there's like that shot of the two main characters who are a couple laying in bed and it just it's just them not talking, not looking at each other, 
and the camera just kind of lingers on that moment. It's basically that feeling, but for an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so an uncomfortable moment of the first of the Dawn of the Dead is now a whole movie. Yeah. Just slow, bitter burn through the whole thing. I it, it, I think this one affected me more than it ever did before. I saw it in, in college, and I kind of like, eh, it's okay. Um, but I actually appreciated this way more now than I did then. Yeah. And another thing that is interesting is that there is some hope at the end, despite the everyone, the last few people's lives. Yeah. There is an interesting sort of connection or an interesting kind of thing that happens in the movie is that at the end when everything seems like they're screwed, what do the military guys do? They immediately abandon each other and it's like everyone's out for themselves and that causes their demise, every single one. Whereas the the heroes of the story, they're the ones that sacrifice themselves to try to save each other and they're the ones who make it out. So I really like that. Connection. Yeah, I think, I think that claustrophobic tunnel run through the zombies is one of the best fucking set pieces yeah so much tension because you just can't see and and it's just oh i was, I was sweating sweating <laughs> yeah uh, it's a fantastic movie uh very politically driven um very depressing but a very good movie it's i, I don't think it's a movie that can really be remade or made again no and yet keep doing it <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, Millennium Pictures owns the rights right now, as far as I know, and they also own the Leatherface franchise, and they're just not letting that shit go. Yeah, it's kind of like the way Dimension did with Hellraiser and Children of the Corn. Just keep going. I guess. Yeah. Did uh, Did you see Army of the Dead at all? The one that was on Netflix, exclusive movie uh, directed by Zack Snyder. Oh no no no! I have not. Yeah, I didn't. I don't. I don't think I want my zombie movies big. And when I hear a budget's 150 million for a zombie movie, I'm like, okay, so it's basically just like a big budget Resident Evil. It's not about the characters, it's about the action. Yeah, I mean, I love the idea of like a heist movie set in a zombie apocalypse, where the zombies are kind of the background. Yeah, that that is interesting. But from what I understand, that's not really how it went. No, I, I, you have that much money, you got to have special Yeah, and, then, and to be fair, if I ever got to make a zombie movie, I've always wanted to make Galaxy of the Dead, where you're taking fucking skulls off with laser guns, <laughs> you're kicking them out of spaceships, and they're still alive, so they land on another spaceship and break their way through, and they're landing on a planet, and everybody there is dead. It's, I kind of want to see something crazy like that. I mean, you can do it. Like, you can have a... You know, you go to another planet to mine resources, and then like some kind of thing, and it gets into the spacesuit and turns the dude basically into a zombie. Yeah, well, I mean, Ghost of Mars is a little bit like that, I guess. Let's, uh, let's not talk about it. Yes, yeah. I know some people would love it. There's this weird thing that happens with movies. Now I get where some movies are underappreciated, like Day of the Dead, where it didn't do that well at the box office. But there's movies that we all agreed were shit that we regretted seeing. And then 20 years later, somebody's like, Ghost of Mars is a great movie. Someone now is arguing with me right now. Oh, not arguing. I just go, okay. Um, that Howard the Duck is a good movie. No. What? Stop it. When I was seven, I thought it was a great movie. No. Stop it. It's not good. It's very... I, the weird thing about Howard the Duck is like it's a human woman having sex with a duck. Yeah. Duck fucker. I don't get that. Dude. It's like, uh, oh man, 
was the other one. It's like how like the Sonic games are now trying to incorporate like human characters for him to have sex with or have relationships oh, with. It's just weird. uncomfortable and weird. Why do people do that? All right. So for our next episode, we're discussing. Uh, the classic Reanimator and the first Rage Virus movie called Warning Sign. Uh, very underseen, to almost totally forgotten movie that's not a zombie film, but it lays the groundwork for what would, I think, eventually land with uh, 28 Days Later. Are we going to be able to do Reanimator Part 2? Uh, I have to get it first, but we got a few more years. That was 1989. Bride Reanimator. Okay, so that is for the next episode, and thank you, everybody, very much. And Kersey, thank you. Hey, no problem. I, I, I relish being able to talk about Day of the Dead, because I've met very few people who have seen it. Oh, really? Cause I, I feel like it's, it's gotten more ground lately, but uh, the Screen Factory uh, Blu-rays of both those movies, um, I've heard... I don't, I don't own Day of the Dead, uh, but I might get it soon. But uh, that one's really well done. There is a version of Return of the Living Dead on there that's a work print um don't get excited don't buy the blu-ray for the work print okay it's unwatchable it is the it's a work print on a vhs of a vhs and it's just terrible watch the original version it's good it's fine <laughs> all right everybody that is it have a good night